Hi, I'm Jansen. I serve in audio and production, and I also am a youth mentor here. Uh, so if you do not have a Bible, there are blue Bibles under your chairs. We are reading out of 2 Samuel today, chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. In the blue Bibles, it is page 149. And if you do not have a Bible currently, we encourage you to take that one home with you, and uh, it's our gift to you. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. They all ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof of a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, It is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she said and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in the booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today and also tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and then some of the servants and David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all of the news of the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all of the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and he says to you, Why do you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Ablimech and the son of Jer Jerusalem? <laughs> not a woman cast in the upper milestone from him on the wall, that he died in Desbeth. Why also go so near the wall that you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gave an advantage over us, and they came out against the field. But as we drove them back to the entrance of the gate, then the archers shot at your servants and the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. 
Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent out and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jensen. That's a doozy uh, to get through. And we're going to go into chapter 12 a little bit as well. Um, so, Richard, thank you for letting us be a part of that. That was very sweet. Sorry it happens on this day where the passage is not as sweet. This is an intense passage. I think about this, uh, like in your life, a moment when somebody you looked up to, whether it's a parent, an aunt, an uncle, grandparent, a boss, like a moment where somebody really let you down. And like who they proved themselves to be was less than what you had built up in your mind. Like for me, playing travel baseball, when my coach, he was a neighbor, like really good friend, and this is a little thing, but I remember this vividly. I was like 11 years old, playing on his team, and we're at his house at a party, and he just gets plastered drunk. He stumbled around, falling on his face. I remember just being 11, like, who I thought he was, was mightier than that. And this guy can't even get up off the ground. And that's, don't take that as judgment on alcohol, or probably you shouldn't get drunk. But it was just for me, like, gosh, that's not who I thought he was. And what we get here, especially after last week, if you were last week, David just shows up big last week. He shows kindness to Mephibosheth. He shows the gospel and his actions. It's this amazing passage. And then you turn the page, and we're in chapter 11 now, and David shows us who he truly is. He's a lot more like us, sinful, broken, pain-causing people than we'd like to admit. Maybe the king that the people wanted is not as good. Expected. So we're going to look at this story, and I want to do it in three three ways, three sort of movements, chapters. Here's sort of how this plays out. You see the story of David and Bathsheba. If you've grown up in church or have any sort of Christian background, you've probably heard this story. Hopefully we'll see it in a fresh light today. And then you transition in chapter 12. Now there's a Nathan and David situation going on. And then what I want to end on is just both of these stories should propel us and push us forward to something better. Because what this story leaves us with is not all that hopeful if David and people like David get to rule this place. So that's where we're, we're going to walk through those. I'm going to give you a verse that goes with each of them for you to take home and just meditate on. But this is, like I said, a heavy passage, and I just want to ask God to graciously be with us. So let's pray together and just ask him to be this. God, as we walk through this, this is not in here for any other reason than it happened in your spirit inspired people to write it down, to tell the story of your people and all their glory and potential glory and all their failures and devastation. So God, help us to walk through this story faithfully. I pray there would be a healing where there needs to be healing. I pray that your spirit would really just comfort this room and that your word would bring us closer to you. God, we love you so much. Thank you for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. amen. So here's what we're gonna do. David and Bathsheba, you've heard this story more than likely. Here's what I want to do. David and Bathsheba, it sort of gets uh, truncated down to just the, the little sexual uh, incident that happens between them. But as I've been reading this and I listen to an audio to try to kind of hear how the author is trying to get us to hear the story, the word sent is the key word. It's used like 15 times. It's this person sent here, sent, sent, sent. So what we're watching here is how people use their power and their ability to send. And what we see with David and Bathsheba is we see a king who sends simply to take for himself, which is interesting because it's the exact warning that God gave to Israel before they agreed 
to have a king. So let's read the first couple of verses together and set the stage. Verse 1 through 3. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and the servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Let's stop right there. So sent. The first thing we see is David sends to inquire about this beautiful woman as he's walking on the roof while he sent his men out to war. He sends to inquire. And there's two themes that are racing through this story. One is sort of just sin and how sin grows and becomes what it is and then the ripple effects and destruction that sin leaves. The other greater one is David's not the king we need. We need a better king. But as we see this, we're going to see sin sort of play itself out. And what we see here is sin is never inevitable. Like you have a choice to sin or not to sin. Look at the person who brings back the inquiry in the middle of verse 3. And one said, is this not Bathsheba? So he names the woman. And then the person gives two Sort of pictures, mental pictures for David to bow out of this terrible decision he's about to make. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's so-and-so's daughter. First image. And she's married to Uriah the Hittite, who's in like David's special forces, top 30 soldiers in his entire army. David. David. He doesn't say, don't do this. He just says, remember her dad? Remember her husband? Sin is not inevitable. What we're seeing here is the temptation that is not uncommon to man. We don't face a unique temptation that gets dropped down from satanic forces. All temptation is common to man, meaning Satan has the same playbook and he runs it over and over and over again. I'm coaching youth football and I've got seven plays and it's not because we're not good, it's just because we're trying to figure out how to mess those seven plays. Satan has a couple plays and they all involve Deception, and what we see here is like distracting David. David, don't, don't, don't do it. What's David going to do? The crown of David is about to get a lot less shiny. Let's keep reading verse 4 and 5. So David sent messengers and took her. Because you know that word took is a very violent Hebrew word. Captured, grabbed a hold sent and took another man's wife, another man's daughter. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David I am pregnant. So this is where the story of David and Bathsheba this is the bullet point. This is sort of the picture we have of what happens is David having sex with Bathsheba. What actually happens here? Because one of the commentaries I've used since I became a preacher, I love it, it's great, faithful, but I'm reading through it on this. And they make the point that Sheba is enticing David with her actions. And they would paint this as a consensual, sort of adulterous rendezvous while one person's husband is off his job. And I just, it makes me sick that that's how somebody would read this because I don't see that in the text at all. Like, what is going on here? David sent 
few ways I know that. Nothing is mentioned about what she was doing. We're going to see that she's purifying herself, completing herself. Of just That's just to prove that she's not pregnant. From she's not pregnant. But she's not doing anything wrong. And then at the very end of this, what Jansen just read, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Not the thing that David and Bathsheba just did displeased the Lord, but the thing that David had done. And then fast forward in chapter 12, when we get there, it's going to be Nathan, the prophet, comes in and says, David, you did this. So this is David's sin. Not Bathsheba. Bathsheba is receiving the sexual sin of a man more powerful than she. Now here's the one of the dilemmas in this, and us preachers, pastors are just kind of thinking through how to shepherd this moment. But what's the language we should use to describe it? Because statistics say one in four women have been sexually abused in some way, shape, or form. So that involves a decent amount of people in this room. So this story is like bringing up stuff for certain people in this room. And we don't want to call it adultery because it's opposite of adultery. Most of the people that I've gone to would say some version of sexual exploitation. The one in power takes. And since he's the king, she can't really say no. She has no free no. So she's not. It's not on the same foot. So it's sexual exploitation. I think it's along the lines of rape of some sort. Either way, like if we can think through categories and what this means, it's devastating what David does. And its ripple effects, we're going to see, go far and wide because sexual sin, especially this egregious and aggressive, is going to have effects. And here's what I want to say. Like, as I pass through longer and longer and I try to disciple people, our sexual story is a key part of our discipleship journey. For better or for worse. And us pastors and ministry leaders across all the redemptions are just constantly in rooms with people that have broken sexual past, either from their own choosing, a lot of times from what people have cho chosen to do to them, and in every category, every person in this room, we've all been affected by just the sexuality and brokenness around us that we all have to swim in these waters. So either way, we all have a sexual story that needs to be discipled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're just like, a lot of us pastors are always like out of resources and tools on how to navigate this. So one thing we're doing, we're bringing in a, a speaker, a nationally known guy. He just wrote a book on sexual wholeness. His name's Jay Stringer, but it's going to be at Redemption Gilbert, so that's kind of far. It's on the east side. It's where we come from. But it's a Saturday. It's 9 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. It's 30 bucks a person. If you need help, uh, let me know. I'd love to get you there. 60 bucks for the couple. But here's what I know. Your sexual story and the shame and or guilt and or fear that goes along with that. The gospel can speak to it and heal it. But you have to bring it out into the light. And this conference is just our little way to try to step into this arena for the Bathsheba's of the room and for the David's of the room and for whoever in this room who needs some light shed on their sexual story so that they can experience healing. So we're going to have that conference. Please pray about it. Don't just say, you can read the book, which I've done. It's phenomenal. But when you put yourself out there, it's called faith. God blesses faithful action. So take a step forward, and hopefully you can make that. All that to say, David should have stopped here and said, Man, I just screwed up. I'm the king. I'm here to protect and lead. I just took advantage of this woman. That's not at all what happens. He continues to send, and now he sends to deceive. Let's keep reading verse 6 down through verse 
uh, 13. His pedestal, he's been knocked off by his own choosing, and it's just getting worse. So David sent word, word to Joab, sending Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which is euphemism for go enjoy your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then lie with my wife? Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I wish David would have said that. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him. He ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he would not go down to his house. God, the author of Scripture, could not be more clear in the contrast he just painted between these two men. David covering up all of the sin and shame. Uriah, faithful, faithful to his men in battle, to his wife, and to his king that just slept with his wife. That is, and like I said, Uriah is one of his special forces. Uriah is not even a Jew. He's from outside the tribe of Israel. It's like God saying, nobody even within Israel is going to be the faithful one. I'm going to have to go outside. Uriah is faithful. I just want us to just see how uh, faithfulness doesn't come with a lot of promotion in the world we live in. The only reason we know this is because God, by his wisdom and spirit, wrote this down for us. But you want to play the part of Uriah, you will be overlooked. You will be mistreated. You will be taken advantage of, which is why nobody chooses the battle. But it's the better way. David is not done yet. Uriah did not take the bait. So David sends again, this time, to murder. Let's read together, verse 14 through 24. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So we all know what's happening. The death certificate is in his hand, the faithful one, walking back to battle. In the letter, here's what he wrote. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fight of the king, then if a king's anger arises, if he says to you, why did you go so near to the, sun, the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Drebesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Meaning, this was a dumb move. Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went, came, and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us, 
came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah is dead also. Uriah is dead. And something hit me. I was just thinking, that's like a lot of knocks against David. And to be exact, he has broken five of the top ten rules God gave his people. Ten commandments. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't cover. We want a king like all the other people. The best we have to offer, King David, the anointed one. 50% on the basic test of morality. Why? Because that's what mankind is like apart from God intervening. He is a murderer. He's a liar. He's a rapist. He's a sexual exploiter. And the list goes on and on. This is who they wanted as king. And how is David going to wrap up this story? It doesn't get any better. Let's read verse 25 through 27. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Just stop right there. I just want you to hear the smugness in David. What he's telling, so Joab knows. Joab's in his army. He knows what's going on. He's seen this happen before with Saul. And he's telling Joab, hey, just so you know, this is war. Some people come out alive, some people die. Like, what an arrogance. Blinded by his own sin, you know what. Hey, don't, this is just how it shakes out. Jehovah was like, let me keep reading. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. So she's in a room alone, crying. Her husband's dead. Verse 24, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Other translations say, the thing that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Let's assume the story just ends here. It's got a great moral teaching point for us about what sin is like. So we can have definitions of sin, it's breaking rules, it's missing the mark, it's, which are all good. We can have analogies, sin is like a parasite, sin is like this. But this is like showing us what sin actually does Chronologically, This is how sin happens. There's a temptation that you can have an out on. That you don't have to go down that road, David. That's so-and-so's daughter. And you keep pressing in. And you keep pressing in. And temptation grabs you. And then it becomes sin. And what does that sin do? It just causes death. Here's the verse out of the book of James. Each person is tempted. This is what we just watched with David. He is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death for you, for your heart, and for those around you, especially for someone like David with so much influence and so much power. This is what sin does. Write that down and meditate and remind yourself of how bad sin is. But here's the other thing I think the author is trying to do, is have us picture life without a God intervening. Like, I don't know, we got a lot of new people in the room. I don't know where you're at. We all sort of have questions about faith and Jesus and the Bible. Some of them get answered, others don't always. But here's like the question you got to ask yourself. If there is no God, this is what we have to look forward to. Now, 
and forever. Is whoever's in power gets to set the agenda and do what he or she wants, and we have to sit with the consequences of those bigger and stronger and more rich than us. Like Bathsheba in a room lamenting that her husband is now dead. If there's no God, this is the best history gives us. It's the biggest, strongest wins. Once in a while you have an upheaval and a revolution and they win, but that's not always the case. The meanest, the strongest wins. But we as Christians believe this is not the end of the story. Even the way the author wrote this, God wants us to say, just so you know, this is not the end. Takes us to our next chapter in the story, Nathan and David. And I just want to read the first part together. So David sends, 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 sends all to do evil. Verse 1, there's another one who will send, who actually sends to do good. Verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. That is a beautiful, reassuring gift the Lord has given us. That there is evil, and there is much to lament. But we have a God who is displeased by the evil he sees, and he does not just sit emotionally with his displeasure. He moves and he acts on it, and he sends Nathan to do what? To confront. Now Nathan steps in, and he confronts the man who was supposed to do better. Let's just read his confrontation. It's very slick. Verse 1 through 4. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city. The one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with them and with his children. And he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This is slick confrontation. Jesus confronts him one of two ways. He says, woe to you, and he points a finger. Or he says, have you heard it said? Both are effective. What Nathan does is he comes alongside. Like one of some of the best conversations I have with my kids are driving because we're not looking face to face. We're side by side. And I can sort of throw in bigger questions that they don't realize. Oh, God's asking some serious stuff here. Because we're like not looking. When you're eye to eye, it's like scary. Nathan goes side by side and says, hey, there's this rich guy and a poor guy, and the rich guy really screwed the poor guy. How does David respond? Verse 5 and 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David, are you sure you want to respond like that? <laughs> In my life as a pastor so far, I deal with all sorts of emotional reactions to sin. And there's sort of two big buckets they can be placed in. There's one, we'll call it the Jesus way. Well, Jesus turned over tables. He went in the temple. He was righteously angry at what was happening. So when the anger comes up, especially sort of real volatile anger, people say, well, I'm not being angry like Jesus. Possibly. Or the other one is a lot like what I see in David. There's an anger. There's a reaction. There's sort of a flinch that comes out of you. And it's usually tied to something in your story that you are either hiding or you don't know you're hiding or you don't know it's affecting you. I just 
in my 12 years now, Pastor, the Jesus-like response is like less than 1% of the reactions I've dealt with as I've shepherded and walked with people. It's almost always tied to this anger that seems great on the surface, and then you kind of pull back and find the roots, and it's like, oh, David, are you sure? This seems like you exactly. And that's what Nathan does. He calls him out. He gets his anger involved. Now, what happens here? Let's keep reading verse 7 through verse 12. The prophet said to confront the king, Nathan says to David, you are this man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To what to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the Lord shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. I'm going to put you on glass, David, essentially. Verse 12. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That's a big statement from Nathan. David, I saw everything. I'm now going to bring it all to the light. David stands there exposed. What's going to happen in verse 13? Here's two ways this could have gone. Here's the, just the courage of Nathan. Nathan did not have to say this. Because he knows how being a prophet in the olden days worked. Prophets were just clowns. People brought them into the kings. And they had to say exactly what the king wanted them to say. Or else they would be killed. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this if you read Old Testament literature about other kings. It's like, hey, I want to know. It's sort of cancel culture. The cultural moment we live in. We want to hear what we want to hear. If someone says something that deviates from what I want to hear. And how I see this. Then I'm just going to cancel them. Well, kings canceled back then. Simply by killing the prophet. But Nathan stands up and says this man. And here's what's going to happen to you. David could have often, but what does David do? Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Just stop right there. The beauty we don't see in English, in Hebrew, that's only two words. Sin and Yahweh. Like my bad, God. David gives us, after evil decision, after evil decision, after evil decision, a beautiful picture of what a good and beautiful and right confession looks like. You don't need a lot of words. In fact, Proverbs would tell you, when there's a lot of words, sin is not far behind, meaning we talk our way into more trouble too often. A confession is short and sweet. I have sinned against the Lord, period. Like, when is the last time you confessed to your spouse, to your ex, to your daughter, to your son, and it was short, sweet, I was wrong. Forgive me. That's it. That's what we see in David. He confesses short and sweet. Now, what is the response? What does Nathan paint here? Here's the consequences of a good and faithful 
confession. The first one is actually beautiful. The rest is sort of what we got to walk through the rest of the time. Nathan said to David, middle of that verse, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. The first consequence of a good confession is God will forgive you. I will put away your sin. As far as the east is from the west, I will remove your transgressions from you. David, what you did is horrific. No woman should go through that. No soldier should have to be a part of that. That is terrible. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That is the worst of the worst. But I've taken that and I've forgiven you. That is amazing. But he goes on to say, there's also going to be some consequences. The first consequence is all this private sin that you've been harboring is going to come out publicly. And now the sword will never leave your house. So we're going to walk through the rest of this book until we get to Advent season. And it doesn't get better for David. Next week is maybe more rough than this one. They're going to take your wives. They're going to take your daughters. Your kingdom is going to be what started as Camelot. This beautiful, this is how it could be. It turned into a TMZ reel of drama and bad choices and murder and deception. David, that's your consequence. And the hardest, the hardest for me to understand, this child that was born, that was created between you and Bathsheba will also die. Which is where you just got to lean into God's goodness as you experience some of the stuff that's a little more rattling. You are forgiven, but your house will never be the same. This is publicly going to play itself out forever. And now your son is going to die. That's what confession, according to the Bible, is. God will offer you forgiveness. But there still is consequences to your actions that you have to walk through, maybe for the rest of your life. What's the verse, I think, that summarizes what we need to take from David? It's out of 1 John. It's one of those beautiful, simply put, I think, invitations of what Christianity offers. If we confess our sins, it's conditional. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he will cleanse us, not from our consequences, but from our unrighteousness and the wicked stuff in our heart that got us to the point where we thought we could take another man's wife. He will cleanse us from all that unrighteousness and help you walk through the consequences that you now have created. Nathan is sent to offer forgiveness, but also the reality that there is and always will be consequences. Just know that's a hard reality, but we want that reality. Like even if you think about Me Too and all the things we walked through in the last 10, 15 years with sexual sin and how women are mistreated and how power is abused. Like so much of Me Too is like whoever's the one that hurt the person, get them out. Very little talk about how to redeem and forgive the person who caused any of this damage. It's canceled. They are done. The gospel says, no, 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 David has offered forgiveness too. But then I also talk to Christians who have very basic and poor theology. And they'd say, let's just forgive and forget. It's like, yeah, forgive, yes. And now Nathan says, you're going to walk through the reality of what you've created, David, for the rest of your life. This is how forgiveness works. Your sins are removed. Now, David, here's the reality that you're going to walk through. This is what Nathan brings to the table for David. Now, here's where we got to end. It's still not like the best news. Like, I hope Nathan's not the final person God sends. Because we need more than just a prophet. 
We need more than some guy or some girl showing up to point out and confront the areas of our life that don't match up with the standard God has set forth. We need someone to come in and fix and heal us in our sin and shame. And that takes us to our last one, is Jesus in us. He is the king who was sent only to give. I want to give you the verse right out of the gate. Why was Jesus sent? Here's what John 3.17, which comes right after the most famous verse. You guys go and watch football today. You're going to see the beginning of this. You won't see this part. But here's why Jesus was sent. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. Or David. Or Bathsheba in all of her shame and lamenting and sadness. Or Uriah. Or anyone in this room. He did not send Jesus to condemn. Why did he send it? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Why was Jesus sent to give us life and life abundantly? How does he do that? Through saving us. What we see in David, unfortunately, is a reflection of what we're like. James Madison has this quote about government. What is government? What is King David? What is America? Here's what government is. It's the greatest of all reflections on human nature. As we read about the kings of Israel, we should have like a mirror that's constantly making us have to look at David's flaws back at my own flaws and your flaws. And what we see is all of us need a king who comes not to condemn, but to save. And do we have a gospel big enough for every character in this story? I just want to end with walking through each of the people involved in this situation. What does King David need to know from Jesus? The big king whose sin had ripple effects that lasted for generations and generations. Some of you fathers can maybe relate. Like you blew it for years, possibly decades. And you dads have caused ripple effects of destruction. Potentially. What do, you, what do you come to church for? To hear just, yeah, you suck. Here's what Jesus tells David. You are forgiven by the crucified king. Your sins have been removed. David, there's good news for you. What about the rest of us? What about Nathan? Those of us that have people we know we need to confront. Those of us that are pressing into issues that show injustice in the world. What do we need to hear from the gospel? God sees you. And your work is not in vain, but he no longer needs to send prophets simply to point out the injustice. He sent Jesus, who went to the cross and received the ultimate injustice, death, to the only innocent one who has ever lived. You need to know Jesus, those of you pressing in to these issues that are difficult. What about our boy Uriah? I love this guy. I can't wait to meet him one day. I think the author wants us to just remember Uriah should not be forgotten. I went and counted how many times the author uses Uriah. It's over 20 times. It's almost like God's way to say, don't miss him. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. David and Bathsheba. Yeah, but Uriah. David and Bathsheba. Don't forget Uriah. Those of us in this room that are faithfully doing what we're supposed to be doing, even if it causes us harm, neglect, we don't get the promotion. Just so you know, David gets a lot of the praise. But the Holy Spirit saw Uriah through that entire story. And he sees you in your faithfulness. And one day, like Uriah, you're going to see God and he's going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's good news for those of us in the room. What about Bathsheba? My heart breaks. I don't have any daughters. I don't think I could handle it emotionally. 
like the girls I used to teach and be a youth pastor over, like I was just a bleeding heart for all the stuff they had to go through. Like, what does the gospel offer to Sheba? I think God simply would say, David and the Davids of the world do not write your final story. She gets invited into the story, the grand story of God. She gets to experience even more pain, which is hard to wrestle with. The son that she bears through this encounter with David then dies after birth. And she has to lament and cry. And she gets to share in the heart of God who gave his one and only innocent son for the sins of the world. And she gets to experience what it's like to live out the heart of God. And God does not cut her off after that. He continues to write her in. And she has another son named Solomon, also known as Jedediah. And she gets to move our story one generation over and get us a little bit closer to the true king that we're waiting for. It's not Solomon, it's not David, it's not Saul, it's not anyone in this room. What we need is the true king, Jesus Christ, who did not come to condemn but came to save because we are sinners and we're all more like David than we want to admit. How do I wrap up this story? Here's how I'd summarize it just in my quiet time this morning. I was like, what's the... Here's the essence. David like us, has put all the cost of his decisions on everyone else. He made everyone else pay for his decisions. Jesus took all of our decisions and all of the cost of our decisions and all the pain caused by our decisions. He took them on himself. And the Bible says he bore those sins in his body on a tree. That is the gospel message. And that is the only reason I can get through First and Second Samuel without shutting it because it's so heavy. Because there is light at the end of the tunnel and his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for not sugarcoating what life is actually like. Thank you for never giving us a Bible that does not match with the highs and lows and pain points of what life is actually like. Thank you for your authenticity with us that you don't withhold even some of your decisions and actions and motives that we don't totally understand at first. But God, you want a real relationship Paul. So you give us the real you and we want to give you the real us. So in this moment I pray we would give you the real us. Those of us that need to confess, we confess. Those of, us, those of us that are in a season of temptation where people are telling us, are you sure you want to proceed? I pray by your grace we would take the escape route that you want. Those of us hurt by the sins of others, I pray that we'd be reminded that your story does not hand over the pen to sinful men. But the pen has always been in the hands of the good and faithful creator God our ashes and our dust and our pain and turn it into beauty. God, help us to trust that a little bit more in this moment. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.